Alvin has nothing to brag about. Chicago voters woke up and chose violence, and nobody, literally nobody, wants Jill Biden or her breakfast tacos. Let's crown my losers of the week. The show starts now. Shoot, it's been quite the week, hasn't it? For the first time in U.S. history, a former and maybe future president has been indicted and arraigned. Now I'm a law and order type gal, so if Donald Trump really did something criminal, I'd plug my nose, swallow my mega pride, and let the justice system go to work. But that's not the case here, because the case here is a bunch of phony baloney BS, and Alvin Bragg knows it. He just doesn't care because this is his moment to be somebody. But you should care because he's wasted your tax dollars to do it. And if you don't like Trump, you should still be pissed because all this sham indictment has done is bolster Trump. Alvin Bragg is, realistically, Trump's biggest fundraiser. How he explains this to New Yorkers is beyond me, but let me guess, y'all will still vote for Bragg and Democrats like Bragg because you don't mind living in a lawless hellhole so long as you have access to unfettered abortions and drag shows for kiddos. And that goes for my next losers of the week, Chicago voters. If you'll recall, in February, Chicago voters ditched Beetlejuice Lightfoot in the primary and it really looked like y'all over there in Chirac were starting to wake up. But I guess not, because y'all elected a new mayor who is even worse. Brandon Johnson, who was supported by the teachers union, defeated fellow but not psycho Democrat Paul Wallace, who was supported by the police union. Brandon Johnson has called for moving law enforcement, has defended looters as racial justice warriors. And I don't know, something tells me he's not going to make Chicago more safe. But if he doesn't do it for you, maybe next go around you can just elect Jesse Smollett and get it over with Chicago. Good luck and uh, let's go, Brandon. But speaking of Brandon's, my next loser of the week is Brandon's wife, Jill. Turns out pretty much no one likes her, including Angel Reese of LSU women's basketball. The damage is I don't accept the, I'm not going to lie to you, I don't accept the apology because mm -hmm. of, you Jill, said what you Jill said. Biden. Yeah. First the, lady. The, the wife, lady. yeah. You said First what you lady. said and you, you meant what I you said. I said what I said and like, yeah. you can't go back on certain things that you, you say. I mean, you felt like they, they should have came because of sportsmanship, right? They can have that spot. Like, We'll go to the Obamas. We'll, we'll, we'll see, I'm gonna see Michelle. Does, I'm gonna see Barack. Uh, hold on, hold on. So did did you guys speak to the first lady? No. Apparently, she was supposed to come to our locker room before the game, but we said no. Before the game. Yeah, they were all. She was supposed to come to our locker room and go to Iowa's locker room. I don't know if she talked to the, the lock them. I don't know if she did, but we said we didn't want to. We didn't. We didn't want her coming Why? to the locker. Room. Dang, that's cold as ice right there, but yet totally understandable, honestly. I don't think anyone likes Jill except for Kamala's husband, but that's a story for another day. And those are my losers of the week. Still ahead, Christianity is under attack in America and right here in Tennessee, but what can we do about it? Pastor Alan Jackson joins me in studio next. So Tennessee is in the heart of what used to be the Bible Belt, but now even the South has gone woke and rainbow obsessed. Though we do have our Tennessee child protection law in place, which outlaws drag queens gyrating in front of kids, certain municipalities have decided to bucket and decency and carry on with four all-ages events, such as the Franklin Pride Festival. Now, there was a change.org petition to stop this event, and it gathered just under 1,000 signatures before it was taken down by both change.org and Facebook for being abusive. Joining me now to weigh in on that and so much more is senior pastor of World Outreach Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, Pastor Alan Jackson, not to be confused with country singer Alan Jackson. Absolutely. We like you better. 
So I want to start with this Franklin Pride Festival. So this has been a point of contention for a while now. But now that we have this new Tennessee law that says, hey, you know what, be a drag queen, but maybe not in front of kids, it's still going on. And there are people, rightfully so, that are really fired up about it. But it seems like every institution is against protecting children, even ones that are supposed to be about change and voicing your opinion. What do you make of all this? And do you think that the festival will still go on? Well, unfortunately, I suspect it will go on because I, I think the... Um they lack the courage to face it down. I think the reason it got delayed is there was enough of a public presence there that they didn't have the courage to say it in front of those people. And if the people have the will to persist, I think they can turn it back. But I don't think the leaders have that courage. So we'll see if the people are persistent enough to hold it. But I think the, par the parade is the smoke from the fire. You know, the books in the libraries, the... Right. I mean, that's still a battle in Tennessee, not in California. I mean, pornographic books in the in our libraries for our children. I mean, it is beyond out of control. Vanderbilt here in Nashville was doing gender modification surgery on minors. That's reprehensible. I mean, that's Mengele alike. No, it is. And we've been talking about Vanderbilt for a while because, boy, have they gone woke. Whether they're marching for gun control, completely ignoring, by the way, what happened in Nashville a little over a week ago. I want to talk about that because That's as somebody true. who's a Tennessean, I've only been a Tennessean for three years, but I, I count myself a Tennessean and a Nashvillean. And when I watched the way the mainstream media covered what happened at Covenant Christian School with the murder of six Christians by a trans person, I was not surprised, but I was utterly disgusted. And I wonder what the religious community here in Tennessee had to say about that and what you personally thought when you saw that the way that the national media covered what happened. All right. I can't speak for the whole religious community, but I, I have some opinions. You know, I thought the media had more compassion on the trans person that murdered our children than it did on the families in the schools where the tragedy occurred. And the refusal to label it a hate crime or the hesitancy to do that or to fully disclose the, the manifesto and all the documents that were around that. You know, I've talked to some of the officers that work, were working with it and it's far more heinous than what we've been told so far. Uh, but again, it's a symptom of a larger problem. They went hunting Christian children, targeting some of those children specifically, not randomly or not by accident. And the media is unwilling to tell that story. We better wake up. The marginalization of Christians, the dehumanization of Christians to present us as if we're less than. You know, when Arizona School Board says they wouldn't put student teachers from a Christian university into their schools because they were dangerous to be around children. And there was crickets in response from the media. That's a heinous statement to make. If you take the behavior from the school shooting or from that school board and you plug any other minority group into it, Jews, women, blacks, Hispanics, trans people, gay people, there would be a national outcry that would be deafening. When it's Christians, there's very little courage to say anything. If we don't change, and we don't change quickly, they'll be confiscating property. They'll be shuttering our buildings. They'll be accusing us in the media with false claims. There are historical precedents for this behavior, and we're a long way down the road already. It's time for the Christian community to wake up and stop politely and demurely conceding the field. You're right. So that's really my next question. How much are Christians to blame themselves for this? Because I feel like conservatives and Christians, and Christian conservatives specifically, have a real problem, like you said, pushing back.
because we don't want to be called a name. So we seed our ground, we seed our ground, the goalposts continue to move to the left, to the left, to the left, and before you know it, they're able to demonize us in the media, they're able to demonize us around the world and get away with it. And I wonder how much fault falls on us as Christians because we are too quiet. We are part of that silent majority who just wants to get along and wants everyone to like us. Do we have to stop wanting everyone to like us? Is that the key? Well, wanting everybody to like us is a false gospel. That, that's not the gospel that we learned from Jesus or from the pages of Scripture. And as to the cause or the fault, it is our fault. Our assignment is to be light. And if the darkness is more intense, you don't get rage against the darkness. You have to wonder who diminished the light. And we created the vacuum, our capitulation, our worshiping of comfort and convenience and our expressing it in tolerance for every sort of wickedness and ungodliness created the vacuum that all of this is filling. And now to take that ground back, we're going to have to have a different kind of courage than we've seen for generations. There's a history of it. This is not the first generation where God's people wandered into the weeds. That is the story of Scripture. It's the story of the history of church. The cycle repeats itself. But someone in every generation has to have the courage to say, we're not going any farther. See, it's no longer about our, my child. It's about the children. Mm -hmm. Are we going to have the courage to stand up and say, you will not prey on our children with hideous, abominable ideas, mutilating them. They can't buy a beer yet, and you're going to let them cut off genitalia. And we stand silently by? I don't think so. We don't have to be violent. We don't have to be belligerent. But we have to be determined, resilient. We have to persevere. we got to find our voice. I think history is going to remember Christians for how we did or did not protect children, and not just Christian children, but all children. So when you see these things happening, even right here in Nashville, Tennessee, which you would assume would be more conservative, as you said, this isn't Los Angeles, this isn't Austin, Texas, this is Nashville, Tennessee. It should be more conservative, it should be more Christian, it should be more faith-based. But there is an attack on it even right here in Tennessee, and I wonder, what do you think made that shift, that change? Is it young people? Are we losing young people in this faith? Because a lot of young people are identifying now as spiritual. They don't want to be Christian. They don't want to be Catholic. They don't want to be Protestant, Lutheran. They want to be spiritual. Whatever that means to them, it feels like maybe we're losing that battle with young people. How do we win it? Well, ultimately, I'm an optimist. So I'm not willing to write off the younger generation. When I look for cause and effect, I look back a generation to the parents. And I think they've more, been more determined to see their children have comfort and convenience and not have any hardship or any suffering. So they haven't taught them what it means to endure and persevere. They got participation trophies. You know, they have been sheltered in many ways. And to, to walk our way from where we are to a better place is going to take some real courage. That generation of people that waded ashore at Normandy, they were 18 and 19. And I, I think if we had to do that today, it's not the kids that wouldn't go, it's the parents that wouldn't let them go. So we have to have a change a generation back. The parents are going to have to be willing to acknowledge some of the weaknesses and what they have poured into the hearts of those generations behind us. And then I believe those young people will step up to the challenge. There's a long history of believing that. But we have to teach them again that children's lives do matter. Those nine-year-olds that were hunted down in Nashville, Tennessee a few days ago is horrific beyond almost imagination. But in God's sight, there's no difference in those and the ones that are 21 weeks along that we're terminating by the hundreds across the nation today. And the churches aren't willing to find their voice to say that's reprehensible. So I, I, it's not the kids' fault. Do you think churches have become more progressive? I mean, we know it, but 
In what ways? Because it seems to me, I think that there's kind of a spectrum when we talk about this. Yes. In some ways, there's a softening of the church, which I think is advantageous to the church in saying, hey, listen, sometimes the hard line rules aren't working to bring more sheep into the flock, right? So maybe we do need to be a little bit more tolerant or at least our messaging change a little. But then you go to the complete other way where churches, like, it feels like they have lost all moral compass. And I wonder what you see that as and what do you think is to blame? It's a really good question. That's a longer segment, but I'll, I'll jump in for a moment. I think we've lost our sense of true north, and we've imagined that we determine right and wrong ourselves based on how we feel or what we think is appropriate or whether, where we identify on an ideological spectrum. And for the Christian, those values aren't set by us. We're subjected to the lordship of Jesus, which means those priorities are set beyond us. And I don't think we have to be legalistic and harsh and mean-spirited and cruel, which there's a, an abundance of evidence in history to. But we can also say for two or three decades, we have tried capitulation and tolerance, and it has weakened us. I think we have to come back and be willing to, uh, to stand beside a biblical view of a family, why that matters, why that's the best thing for children. Are we, do we live in that world perfectly? We're far from it. But it's still the ideal for the kids. And it's worth striving for and battling for and protecting. And because we want to be uh, applauded or welcomed and not shunned or labeled, we've capitulated on fundamental principle after one after the other until the, the technical word is we're apostate, which means we've rejected the fundamentals of our faith and adopted the fundamentals of our culture. And now we have no moral authority to say that the trans community is really not a good idea. Right. While they're preying on our kids, but because we've capitulated on the whole biblical view of human sexuality already, we've got no moral authority now that we arrive at this point of the absurd. So what do you say to those that maybe were raised Christian, were raised religious, but now they've got a different view? They view the church as intolerant or bigoted. What do you say to those people to bring them back into the fold? Well, first I'd ask them who's handing them those labels. And are they trusted sources? Those same people tell us that Donald Trump is a felon and a Russian pawn and the most dangerous individual to our national security that we've seen in our lifetimes. Those same people tell us that Dr. Fauci is a scientific genius and that a, a bandana will protect you from a virus or that the vaccine will keep you from getting sick and it's the pandemic of the unvaccinated. And you let those people hand you a label about me? Now, which one of us is stupid and intolerant? Right. So you brought up Donald Trump. It's obviously a big week yeah. for American injustice, we'll call it. I usually have faith in the justice system because I think it gets it right most of the time. This is not the case with this situation because this is, quite frankly, a witch hunt, but it's nothing new. They've been going after this man. They're going to continue to go after this man. But there are a lot of folks, even in the Christian community, that say, how could a Christian be a Trump supporter? given his lifestyle, given his numerous wives, given the way that he speaks sometimes. What do you say to that? Well, if we were electing a, you know, a pastor-in-chief, I might side with some of those discussions. If we're asking somebody to lead our country to make sound business decisions, to defend our borders, to protect our children, I'm not asking him to be a theologian. I'm asking him to do what he says. And if he tells us he will do it, and then he does that, I will support him. I'm tired of people taking photo ops in front of churches and then living like the devil, sacrificing our children, sacrificing our national sovereignty, betraying us to foreign nations. 
So I understand. The thing I hear most about Mr. Trump is that he just talks mean. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm tired of people that talk in soft words or can't talk at all and then betray us. We, we're going to have to be more clever. We really, we've got to wake up. I, I think, you know, COVID for me pulled back the curtain. I don't think what we discovered during COVID was new. I think that corruption had been occurring for a long time. But until COVID, I kind of trusted the CDC. I still had some faith in the FBI and any mm -hmm. number of places. Since COVID, that, that's really almost eroded completely. And unfortunately, I'm beginning to feel like that about the judiciary, because I think when the FISA courts lied to and nobody says anything, when Trump is indicted as a former president for a ledger entry, right, and the judiciary is silent and nobody's saying anything, they have private lives, they have voices. This is beyond the pale, it's unacceptable. It's a very small bridge between what we just happened with President Trump and them chaining the doors of our church this weekend and then releasing in the media an avalanche of messages that we have been mishandling money. There would be a celebration. We always thought there was something wrong with those people. They've been too successful. Their church was too big. Something. And we're watching it happen, and everybody just thinks it's not coming for them. It's coming for you. And it's time for us to defend our homes and our values and our principles. We're not saying you can't have divergent values and principles, but I'm not willing to be targeted. When they come hunting our children in the schools and arresting a president over a ledger entry, and we don't have the courage to say, wait a minute, we have already surrendered. And I'm not going quietly into that dark night. We need people like you. The last thing I want to say, though, and the last discussion I want to have today is we're ahead of Easter. It's a time when we should be celebrating as Christians, celebrating. But I also see beyond just Easter, I'm looking down the road into 2024, and I think things are going to get pretty nasty. I think Republicans are going to be fighting Republicans. We know the left is always going to be fighting us. I think China and the communists, they gain more strength and control. But here in America is what I'm most worried about because the divisiveness and the vitriol has been so nasty, and I see it only getting worse. What do you say to Americans who feel like the other side of the political divide, they are the enemy, and that they see these people as almost unhuman, and both sides are guilty of this, how do we bring our country together while still having competition, but bring it together in a way that we're united as Americans and hopefully as faith-based people? Well, unity and peace are usually expressions of strength. Any place in the world throughout history where there's, there's a vacuum of power and there's not true strength, there's not peace, and there's not unity. And I think I speak principally to, to people of faith. We have to come back and stop apologizing for what we believe. We don't hate people that have a different opinion for us. But on some issues, there really are better choices. Every opinion isn't equal. Tolerance veered off in its definition, where I will respect your opinion, and it's become every opinion is equal. That's just not true. And we have to be wise enough and clever enough to say some decisions have better outcomes and then support those that have the best outcomes. That's not hate. That, that isn't racist. That's not the diminishment of a, of a gender or a sex. That's a recognition of reality. I think men and women have equal abilities and should have equal opportunities. But thank God we're not the same. Right. And how about somebody just having the courage to say that? And we've lost all of that, and we have thought that was an expression of love. 
when in reality, I would submit it's, it's a fundamental expression of hatred. If I go to the doctor and the oncologist doesn't have the courage to give me an honest report, he's not my friend, he's a quack. And tragically, I think the Christian community has been practicing malpractice. We haven't had the courage to say, that's not the best choice, because we would rather not lose our invitation to the party. Right. And I think it truly is love to come back and say, there's a better way to do this. And we will respect you and work together until we figure it out. But we're not surrendering our perspective any longer. Amen to that. Where can those that live outside of Tennessee hear more of your message for those that are outside of our bounds of our wonderful state here? Yeah, I think go to our website. It's alanjackson.com, and that's A-L-L-E-N. The country music singer spells his wrong. <laughs> there you go. I love it. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. A very happy Easter. Thank and you, thank you for your message and for coming to see us today. Appreciate your courage. I appreciate Keep you. It up. up next, y'all remember that train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio? Well, seven CDC workers investigating the toxic aftermath have fallen ill, but I'm sure it's just a coincidence. My final thoughts are next. Remember about four crises ago when that train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio? Well, it took Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg nearly three weeks to visit that site. And as for Joe Biden, he hasn't gotten around to it yet. But as for the people of East Palestine, Ohio, well, they are still suffering and many in silence because just as I feared would happen, as soon as the outrage moved on to something else, Joe and co effed up, the people of East Palestine will be largely forgotten by us all but not me. And while this shocking and concerning headline may have slipped through the cracks, I want to bring it to the surface because the people of that town deserve it. Seven of the 15 CDC government investigators who went to East Palestine have fallen ill with the same symptoms the government at large scoffed off when the residents of that town sounded the alarm. Sore throats, headaches, coughing, nausea, and more. Yeah, no duh, the place is toxic and the people there have been abandoned. These poor people are stuck breathing and drinking vinyl chloride, which is an explosive and cancer-causing substance, but for some reason, no one seems to care. This is outrageous. These CDC workers, they get to leave, but what about the residents of East Palestine? They're stuck there, and many can't afford to just pick up and leave. What the hell are they supposed to do? Hope for the best? I know the headlines have all moved to Trump and the indictment and everything else, but this stuff still matters. These people in East Palestine are the definition of the forgotten Americans, and it's no wonder they support Trump. At least he went. But as for Joe, he just can't make the time. What happened in East Palestine is bigger than East Palestine because it's a reminder of what's at stake in that 2024 election. Whether it's Trump or DeSantis, we sure as hell know it won't be Joe or Kamala or Pete that shines a light on the forgotten American. But as someone who grew up in one of those flyover states, I can tell you this. Our votes matter because they catapulted Trump into office in 2016. So whoever our nominee ends up being, I'll say, remember the forgotten men and women. And may God be with the people of East Palestine because we sure know the government isn't. Those are my final thoughts. Be sure to catch me tonight on Hannity from New York City, from Nashville. God bless and take care.